So hey, we're going to be getting right into the word today. But before, I'd like to I'd like to ask you a couple questions. Was Jesus's crucifixion the most agonizing moment of his life? Thank you, JL. As you can tell, I like people to respond. Surely it must have been death on a cross was excruciatingly painful. Excruciatingly painful. But maybe for Jesus, what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane was suffering just as great as the crucifixion. When the Passover meal was eaten, Jesus left with his disciples and went to Gethsemane, an area filled with olive trees. The word Gethsemane literally means olive press. Isn't that interesting? Because this is where Jesus ends up feeling the weight and the pressure he must endure for his people. Jesus needed to pray, to pour out his heart to God, and he took three of his disciples to stay close with him. In the next hour or two that follows, Jesus bears his soul, and we see his pain beyond imagining. In his agony, we see the Son of God sweat blood from the burden of the cup that he must drink. We see the human side of him pleading with God. We see our Messiah preparing for a crucifixion. But what do we see from the disciples? What is their response in this moment to Jesus? We pick up the story in Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. Will you all stand with me as we read the word? Starting in verse 36, it says this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one more hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on, See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You all may be seated. I know many of us have probably read this, this passage of Scripture before, and I wonder how many of us have asked the question, why? 
Why would the disciples fall asleep in such a pivotal moment? Because we know as we read this context of scripture that just a moment before, they were sitting down for the final meal with Jesus. And Jesus laid it out very plainly what was about to take place. He said his body was going to be broken and his blood was going to be poured out for them. And I think to myself, if, if I was sitting at that table in that moment and Jesus said next, hey, we're going to the mountain to pray, I would think this is the last moment I might have with my Messiah. The last moment I might have to glean from his knowledge. But as they went up to the mountain with Jesus to Gethsemane in the garden, they fell asleep. Not once, not twice, but three times. And I just wonder why. Why? What I feel like the Lord has for me to tell you today is this. How many of you are falling asleep when God needs you to be awakened? How many of us are distracted when God needs our attention? The title of the talk today is Attention. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to share with your people. And Lord, we pray that the word would go on good soil. Lord, we even pray over, over the statistics and the other things I'll share later on, God, that it would go deep into our hearts and it would help us to be more like you, Lord. God, that we would be encouraged and we would grow as disciples in Christ today. In Jesus' name, amen. Attention. What an interesting concept. I always like to share the definition of things. So I'd like to share with you the definition of attention. It is the act or state of applying the mind to something. That seems pretty simple, right? So what were the disciples applying their mind to? Sleep. They were not applying their mind to Jesus. Their attention was taken off what it was supposed to be focused on. But why? Why? Why could they not tarry a bit longer with Jesus? When, they might, when this might have been their last moment with him. And for some of them, they thought that that's what it is. Well, what if I told you that most of the 12 disciples were teenagers? Let's talk about that. The approximate age of the disciples Almost all of them were most likely between the ages of 15 and 25. So we have Jesus with a group of teenagers trying to stay up till the wee hours. And I guess it's a different culture than today because the teenagers I know rarely sleep. I talked to my friend Elijah last night and he was telling me when he first came back, he just got back from YWAM. He was saying, yeah, man, like things have changed. Like I like sleep at normal times of the night and it's like really weird. And then I talked to him last night and he said something to somebody else about staying up till 3 a.m. And I said, what happened? He said, I don't know, man. I just got back here and I just fell right back into it. But in that day and time, these kids, they fell asleep. So I'd like to share how I can kind of back up that point of how they were most likely children. Though the Bible does not give the exact age of the disciples of Jesus, it is likely that they were all between the ages of 15 and 25 as they followed Jesus. This view allows for some variety in their age with John most likely being the youngest and Peter most likely being the oldest since he was already married. 
The first point I would use to prove this is the education of the time. Education for a Jewish child concluded at the age of 15. For those bright or wealthy enough, higher education consisted of studying under a local rabbi. If you didn't find a rabbi that accepted you, kind of like a college entrance, then you entered the workforce in your mid-teens. In most cases, they apprenticed under their fathers and worked for the prosperity of the family. For example, the sons of Zebedee, fishers. The next point I would share with you is marriage traditions. According to first century tradition, a Jewish man received a wife after he turned 18. There was no mention of the other disciples' wives, and given that information, it makes sense that most were unmarried and possibly under the age of 18. Now, doesn't that change your perspective of some of the stories we've read? My next point is that Peter paid the temple tax. It may seem odd that that in the story where Jesus sent Peter down to the shore and there was going to be a a coin that came out of a fish's mouth. What an interesting story. That there was not just a coin for Jesus, but there was a coin for Peter. And what this can show us is that Peter was most likely above the age of 20 because you wouldn't pay the temple tax until you were 20 years old. And my final point to this is the zeal and childlikeness of the disciples. See how they were arguing like teenagers about who was first? Or how they were so afraid of the storm that would hit their boat. Would a seasoned sailor do that? Or how often they were distracted or did not understand what Jesus was talking about. And the fact that they were quick to admit their failures but be corrected at the same time. Or when it was time to spread the good news of the gospel... They were the voices sent to the entire world without asking why. (laughs) Looking at these factors, it is easy to understand Jesus' patience with them and his teaching style. Think about this. How many times does Jesus share a parable or perform a miracle? And what do the disciples do? Miracle takes place and then disciples are like, hey, Hey, Jesus, can you, like, come over here for a second? Hey, so, like, that leg that grew out and, you know, like, what happened there? (laughs) Or imagine they're, like, all sitting crisscross applesauce and, you know, Jesus is, like, being the best storyteller of all. He's like, oh, what can I talk about? Oh, let's talk about this wheat over here. (laughs) Disciples, listen, there's wheats and there's tares. And they're like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, yeah. You ever seen your kid do that? Oh, yeah. Take the garbage out. Oh, yeah, I'm going to do that. (laughs) And I just imagine the disciples like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Jesus, can you, like, come here real quick? (laughs) He's so like, you know, you were talking about, like, the wheat and the tares, and, like, I didn't really get it. (laughs) (laughs) And we see it over and over and over again, right? They're up on the mountain of transfiguration, and one of the craziest things happen. Moses and Elijah appear. Once again, the disciples are distracted, and they say, should we build altars for these men? And Jesus is like, dude, just be in the moment. And then they go down the mountain before Jesus does, and they try to heal this demon-possessed kid, and they can't do it. And Jesus comes down, and he's like, boop, done. And what do the disciples do once again? Jesus. So like, we were listening to you and like, you know, we like prayed like you told us to do and you like taught us that earlier, but like it didn't work. 
And Jesus is like, it's only through prayer and fasting. But over and over and over again, we see these teenagers that just didn't get it. They just didn't get it. But Jesus was filled with grace. And what blows me away is that Jesus changed this entire world with teenagers. Teenagers. So if you don't think this generation is going to change this world, read the Bible. This generation is going to change the world. And I will fight to the death for that. I believe in my kiddos. If the disciples didn't get it, how much more this generation? So let's talk about what's happening in this coming generation. The first thing I'd like to talk to you about today is memory retention. Yeah, oh my, yep, yeah. We're going there. It's always fun when you preach something that you're guilty of. <laughs> right? Memory retention. Researchers in Canada surveyed 2,000 participants and studied their brain activity. 112 people using electro, electron, electra. Electroencephalogram. Electroencephalograms. <laughs> also known as EEGs. Sometimes we can't say big words and we need Google. They found that since the year 2000, or about when the mobile revolution took place, the average attention span dropped from 12 seconds to 8 seconds. That's not the worst part. Hold on. The attention span of a goldfish is 9 seconds. The goldfish has surpassed us. Uh-oh. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I had a goldfish when I was younger. They are not very bright. I've come to the conclusion that goldfish literally just, they just die because they forget to breathe. People have deemed this generation, check this. They've deemed this generation digital goldfish. Digital goldfish because of their attention span, which is a product of their influence in the digital realm. Goldfish, we're coming for you. <laughs> Don't worry, guys, we'll beat the goldfish, and they won't even know it. <laughs> yeah. There is a generational divide when it comes to attention spans, though. So... 909, we're probably going to have a win here. 1111. <laughs> <laughs> Nearly 80% of 18 to 24 year olds surveyed admitted to picking up their smartphones when nothing is occupying their time. <laughs> it gets worse. <laughs> Most of those people would admit to also picking up their phone even if they're not doing anything on it. Now that I've told you this, you're going to notice it. Some people just pick up their phone and... It's 
<laughs> or another thing I've noticed, they just go like this. And maybe I'm just a part of this generation a lot more, so I notice a lot of weird things they do. Like, I've rebuked the youth group so many times about Snapchat. I'm not really against Snapchat, but I'm against psychotic actions, okay? <laughs> Doing the same thing, expecting a different result. Right? Hey, why did you, like, send that girl, like, a picture of your ceiling fan? Oh, we don't actually we don't actually send pictures anymore. I'm just trying to keep my streak up. Psychotic. <laughs> it's something else. Something else. I did a whole sermon at youth about that. And I shared pictures that students had sent me that they sent Snapchats. Some were like LED strips on their ceiling. Most of it is ceilings. The most of a face that you'll get from this generation is like one eye. <laughs> if you notice that, you FaceTime them and they're like, sup, dude? <laughs> like, you're young, you're not hard of hearing. <laughs> Let me see your face, it's called FaceTime, not eye time. Ooh, I'm getting off track. 80%. Of 18 to 24-year-olds. Now, 909, it's time to cheer. Because only 10% of people over 65 do the same actions. Let's give a round of applause for 65 and up. Come on. I would say 65 and up, you have defeated the goldfish. And that is a good thing. Goldfish. How often do you check your phone, Pat? Did you say a lot? How about you, Marty? I mean, you're on staff, so we pretty much have to check it every, like, five minutes. <laughs> yeah, for those of you that serve on a team and we ask you to check Slack once a day, live in the grace of God. <laughs> I, I don't check it for 30 minutes, and someone's like, did you see that Slack post? So how often do you check your phone? In 2016, a study found that the average smartphone user checks their phone over 20, 2,600 times a day. Do you know what that adds up to a year? A million times. You check your phone a million times a year. Ouch. And this number is just going to keep going up the more we become dependent on technology and devices. Constant browsing, scrolling, and clicking can potentially impact a person's ability to retain and remember information. Nicholas Carr said in his book, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brain, he says this, Moving information from your conscious mind, what's known as the working memory, into your long-term memory requires a process of memory consolidation that hinges on attentiveness. If you're constantly distracted and taking in new information, you're essentially pushing information into and out of your conscious mind. You're not attending to it in the way that is necessary for rich consolidation of memory. Carr's thoughts were backed up by a 2011 study from Scientific America. Researchers noted how subjects remembered less information since they knew they could easily Google it. 
Access to the internet can encourage a lazy mind. I'll take you back to the word I said just a little bit ago. Exephalon, philom, gram. Electroencephalogram. And in my generation, what's my first thing to do when I don't understand the word? I Google it. I Google it. I'd like to talk to you about a couple things that this generation is struggling with, and I may be in this boat with one of them. Two things. First one, TikTok. So there was this time in 2020 where I was locked in my house for an unknown amount of time. I think the rest of us might have been too. And during that time, I found this wonderful app called TikTok. <laughs> and it changed my life <laughs> in good ways and in bad ways. Now, anything can be good in moderation. So I had to learn how to be moderate with my TikTok consumption. But I wondered why TikTok was so addicting, right? So you look into it. TikTok only shows you what you want to see. No more scrolling through posts of people's political views and other things that they want to argue about for whatever reason they're upset with. I could just see the things I wanted to see. Stuff about Jesus. Stuff about conspiracies. <laughs> you can see a man's personality if you just scroll their TikTok for a little bit. Some interesting things. But there's another thing that the generation coming behind us, including my daughter's generation, they're addicted to something else, Caleb. If any of you see a small child run in here and dart for the stage, please stop them. I do not want to be attacked. We did have a small child in nursery get a little upset last night from hearing that theme song. So I went and prayed over nursery before we started today. <laughs> Coco melon is an addiction. Coco melon is a TV show for small children, mostly under five. And if you have not yet let your child watch it, praise be to you. Because once you have, there's no way out. My daughter wakes up in the morning, she says two words and two words only. Nana and Coco. And if either of those things are not given, we have a hostage situation. <laughs> but why are they so hooked on it? Well, interestingly enough, Coco Melon is one of the first cartoons to come out where every scene changes within two to five seconds. Did you know that? Cartoons that I used to watch, 30 seconds, 45 seconds. But think about this. Your kid is watching the screen. One, two, what, one, two, three, what, one, two, three, what, one, two, three. And they're just like, bam, 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 getting hit with all of this imagery on the screen. Now, Coco Melon isn't all bad. I think my daughter's actually learned a lot from it. But it's not really the show that's bad. It's what it's doing to our brain. Because we've become an instant culture. Everything needs to be instant. And we're all mostly guilty of it. Who gets upset? I've said this from the stage on the weekend before. But who gets upset about Amazon packages not being delivered on time? I got to the point even where I added a little device on my garage so that they can put it in my garage and close the garage and tell me when it's there. We become a generation where we need everything instant. And it's, it's changing the way our brain works. So the next point I like to talk about 
is the internet and the brain. The internet is a vast and complex network of interconnected computers hosting an equally complex network called the web of image, documents, and data. Wow, Logan, you sound smart. No, that's Google. Thank her. The brain is an organ, but in many ways, it operates like a muscle. If you don't work it, it gets slow and lazy. But if you exercise it regularly, your brain will be flexible, quick, strong, and versatile. So what has the internet done to our brain? We have become a generation of information transfer instead of information storage. We no longer need to memorize things because we can just go back and find it or we can store it on our phone. Think about it this way. I was talking to Risha and she shared this really cool story with me. I was telling her what I was preaching on this weekend. And she said, man, I remember when I was a kid and we'd have a party or we'd have people over for dinner. We'd sit down and we'd have these rich discussions for hours and hours and hours. She gave an example of they were talking about a movie and they were like, man, who, who was in that movie? Who was the lead role in that movie? And they could talk about that for hours and hours and hours and have this rich time of community and this rich time of conversation. But if you sit down to dinner with me and ask me a movie that Johnny Depp was in, I'll look it up on Google and tell you the whole discography of every movie he started and have a conversation for mere minutes instead of a whole night. Now, it's good that all these things are at our fingertip, but what are we losing? We're not going to dismantle the internet anytime soon. The more important question is, how do we respond. I submit to you that the answer is very simple. It's making time to read the old-fashioned way. On paper, nothing will ever give your brain all the possible forms of nourishment it needs like the Word of God. And I think some of us need to take our studies back to the paperback Bible where no notifications can pop up where TikTok cannot be a temptation, where all I can hear is my daughter watching Coco Melon in the background. <laughs> in a paper book, there are no distractions. The Word of God is the balancing act that we can use to not be defeated by what digital world is doing to our minds. We have the upper hand because we have God and we have His Word. So real quick, I'd like to talk to you about these coming generations. You might not know these words. It's Gen Z and Gen Alpha. There's not a lot of information on Gen Alpha yet, but I'd like to share what these generations are. Gen Zers, they're born between 1996 and 2012, and that can be debated by two years on, on either end. They are currently the largest demographic of people in America, boasting 27% of the U.S. population. 71% of this generation watches more than three hours of online videos daily. Hopefully they're getting some Bible time in on TikTok. For most of them, they only know life in a digital world. Now, now I'm at the later end of the millennials, so I remember a day when telephones were attached to a wall. I remember a day where there was this yellow book that my dad used to hit me with that was actually a phone book. You had to look things up in it. We also had this thing called the Dewey Decimal System. 
And if I tried to explain that to a student today, they would laugh at me. When I had to do a study in school on what an elephant is, I would go to this place called the library, pick up these books, and look through hundreds of them trying to get all the content I need. And students today are like, I just can't get my homework done. (laughs) You have the internet. (laughs) 86% of that generation consumes all digital purchases in the United States. So, Gen Zers, it's your fault that Amazon's so big. (laughs) I blame you. (laughs) Gen Alpha, on the other hand, is a little different. See, Gen Alpha was born from 2012, which is the year that the iPad was introduced. And the last Gen Alphas will be born in 2024. That means that by the end of the 2020s, Gen Alphas will be starting to have children, enter the workforce, go to college, and all the rest of it. What is even more remarkable is that they will be the biggest generation the world has ever seen, boasting two billion alphas. Two billion alphas. Now, if you don't believe me that the next generation can change the world, let me help you. The next generation is literally taking over the world. And we have a responsibility to steward that. So what are we going to see in these generations? Complete dependence on technology and the internet? Attention span of a rock? I don't believe so. I believe that if every parent accepts the biblical role of discipling their children and imparting the knowledge of generations before, then this generation might just be the revival of faith that this country so desperately needs. Two billion disciples ready for training. The last thing I'd like to share with you today is out of Jeremiah 3.15, and it says this, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And what I would submit to you today is that, yes, I'm the youth pastor, but you are the pastor of your youth. Now, I pick up the slack for some of you, but it's really your primary job. And I'm just here to steward what you've already done and to come alongside you. And I'd love to do that. And if you need any help in that area, hit me up. Let's grab coffee. It's my favorite thing to do. We have to disciple this next generation. We have to pass down information and not let it come from other sources. The internet is a great tool, but I believe some things are being lost by our dependence on it. When I was young, I remember fondly my dad teaching me how to change the oil. I remember fondly my dad taking me out hunting for the first time and teaching me how to use a rifle. I remember building a house with my dad. Now, today, all of those things can be looked up on YouTube very easily. But what I would ask you is this. Are you allowing YouTube to be the teacher of your child? Or are you teaching your child up in the way that they should go? One of the best ways to reach this generation and pass not only knowledge but character is to teach them, to come alongside them and do the simple things. How many of us are falling asleep when God needs us to be awakened? 
how many of us are distracted when God needs our attention? If we're distracted, how much more our children? I want to reflect back to the original passage that I shared. In verse 39, it says this, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He drank the cup of judgment in your place. He paid for your sins in full with his life. Will you give him your attention? 